This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome along to our first show of the week here on Second Captains at the Irish Times. A lot of reasons have been offered up over the last couple of days for our heartbreaking defeat at Twickenham there on Saturday. The rolling mall towards the end that just didn't quite work out. Johnny Sexton kicking a restart straight to touch. Mm. A bit of overcomplicated back play maybe by O'Driscoll and Sexton. But we all know the real reason. Yeah, I mean, before the game even started. Are we on the same page? We're on the same page here. Ken, are we on the same page? Pretty much on the same page, I guess. What's the page, man? Peter Romani. Yeah. Didn't hear a word out of him. No, not, no, a, not a peep. Maybe it was because it was Ireland's call. Maybe he doesn't get quite as into it as Aaron Naveen. I don't know. Mm. It could have been that it was O'Driscoll's day. He knew that. He knew the camera would be panning to O'Driscoll on his record equaling appearance. And he just decided to tone it down. Or it could be he's getting self-conscious. He was asked by reporters about it during the week. And it was a little bit sheepish saying, well, I mean, I was just seeing my anthem. Yeah, uh, but although can you really belt out Ireland's call those leaden cliches uh, with the same passion as we can um, <clears throat> put into the mm. gib- gibberish words of the uh, of the so Irish that's language? That's the great thing about Aaron Levine. You, I've given no clue what you're saying. Yeah. So it's basically like you know you're just reciting it by rote. So instead of investigating what you're saying, you're just thinking about how you're feeling. It's like Arnya Haritara now of Kanefka. You know, it's, it's, it's basically the, the same. We, you, you have a rough awareness of what the words are referring to, but no real idea of what any individual word yeah. means. Those words make the hair in the back of my neck stand up. I don't yeah. know what they are, but... Brits out, I think, or, or something, something along that, those that, lines. That's essentially, that's that's essentially what it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I... shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the most awful of all cliches, one of the cliches beloved of Tony Blair, you know, it's that's right there in that... Uh, yeah. yeah, and it just and and that's actually the emotional kind of crux of the whole thing, yeah. shoulder to shoulder. The real thing that <laughs> bugs me about Aaron Caldwell is the kind of key change at the end, where you can actually see Westlife getting up off their stools <laughs> to sing the last the last kind of verse of it. That the the, the sort of the drum roll. Yeah, it's really it's just no. Listen, I think we're kind we've kind of gone back in time like 10 years to people giving out about Ireland's yeah. call but here we are we're giving out about Ireland's call there are other things happening in the game yeah. as well we'll know in Paris we'll know if he can if Peter Manny can just 
get going before the game. Belt out Ireland's call. We have a decent chance of winning. If not, grab, forget, don't even bother watching the yeah, game. Grab the cameraman and inspire the nation. You did say, Ken, there were other things happening. We lost the game, which is the most unfortunate thing. Long term, this might be controversial. I think that losing this match and losing against New Zealand could be good for Joe Schmidt. Okay. Declan Kidney had his success too early. Grand Slam, first year after all the success at Munster. This is incredible. We should be doing this every year. Then you start judging everything possibly a little bit too negatively. Mm. Imagine how we would be talking now about Joe Schmidt if we had beaten New Zealand and had gone to England and derailed the chariot, Murph, as mm. I heard the cliche go quite a number of times over the weekend. Yeah. We just yeah, be, I, I would th- say that, that would be too much pressure for him to live up to. So I think he's right. Just allow a couple of ones to slip away early on in his tenure. He'll be our coach for about 15 years. Yeah. Win the, wor- style. win the World Cup next year. <laughs> no, that's too early again. A oh. semi-final appearance would be perfect. It, uh, too early, you think? Yeah, yeah it's too I, early for really, I really Cup. think we're in a position to be sort of timing our runs at these World Cups, all right. Malachi Clerken is back from the Winter Olympics and is going to be in studio. Yeah, and uh, Malachi would have spoken to us uh, uh, quite a bit over the years about going to Olympics. and how, quite, They're quite strange things to cover. I mean, Ken, you were in London mm-hmm. and... The feeling, I suppose, would always be that there's just too much going on, that you couldn't possibly have an understanding, be able to like sum it up in a thousand words, here was my Olympic experience. No, you'd need at least 3,000. But you could do it in 3,000. Oh, you could, you, you could, I mean, 3,000 is quite a long article. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you can't say it in 3,000, then... It's you, know. you just can't say it. But, yeah, I'd say, I'd say minimum 3,000. No, there's, there's a... I mean, the, the, in fairness, the Olympic Olympics are a lot bigger than the Winter Olympics, I think. Mm. I mean, in terms of the scope of... I mean, how many competitors are in the Winter Olympics? It was 10,500 in the Summer Games. I don't think there's anything like that number in the, in the Winter Games. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I have to say that the Sochi Olympics didn't leave anything like the same impression on me as the London Olympics, which I attended. Mm. That's, I suppose, only natural. Vancouver is probably the fairer comparison, though. Vancouver, I, I watched a lot of. I mean, at the time, I was keeping a lot of unsociable hours, um, and they just happened to be on at the right time of day for me, mm. which is to say, from Midnight. eleven to, <laughs> eleven till three, yeah, in the in the night. So, uh, I did watch a lot of them on that occasion. This time, they were just a bit early in the day for me. We'll get Maliki's impressions in a little while. We're going to start by talking rugby. Shane Horgan and Jerry Thornley, Irish Times rugby correspondent, are ready to go. Jerry, thanks very much for popping into studio. You were over in London. You were at Twickenham. In terms of an occasion, what was it like? Extraordinary. Yeah. Um, well, I feel a bit guilty for saying this, but for whatever reason, myself, Liam Tolan to my right, Gavin Cummins to her left, Mick Scully from the Mirror was there, a couple of others were there. We were front row of the press box, which is the kind of middle tier, bang on the halfway line. And just before the game started, the sun was right in our eyes and you had to have your shades on to, to even have a hope of seeing what was going on. And bang on kickoff, it just dropped below the stand. <laughs> so it, had, it was this beautiful blue sky, um, great sense of occasion, great noise. Um, and everybody there seemed to be wearing the colours and singing. And it was... Quite extraordinary that whenever there was a momentum shift and Ireland came into the game, how loud and audible the fields of Athen Rye were, as of course was Swing Low Sweet Charges. And as you suspect it always would be, it was a barometer of the, the mood fluctuations in the game and it was also a compelling game. There was just, you were taking copious notes for no other reason other than just taking them. So much was happening. There was so many little moments, little key moments, decisions... And it, it it really felt like Ireland were going to win at one point early in the second half. I've, 
I just, I mean, Joe Schmidt's influence again, the, just the turnaround at the start of the second half and the effect that that half-time team talk had and the way they redirected the point of attack to yield an immediate seven points that went back to the mall and went 10-3 up and they, they really had the game and then the momentum shifts back again and then it's just funny because both the start and the end of the game exactly 23 minutes without a score at the, at the start of the game and 23 minutes without a score at the end and yet so much happened in between and even in those scoreless periods and then when it was all over just utter deflation and disappointment and the English relief within the ground and you can actually take some consolation as an Irish person as to how much this meant to them this seemed to, for them almost as good as beating the All Blacks which tells you the kind of performance that Ireland put in and it tells you the stature that Ireland now have in that part of the world. Can I ask you about a decision that we didn't have to make? This is hypothetical. Had we won a reasonably kickable penalty in the last mm. couple of minutes, three points down, mm. would we have been kicking to the corner or taken our draw and moved on to have a look at a championship? It's a good question. Um, never thought to ask that. We didn't get much time with Joe afterwards, and uh, or Paul for that matter. Um, and Paul only spoke to the... Sunday stroke broadcast stroke online media so as a daily journalist you don't ask questions like that you wait until you get okay. your chance and um, we didn't have very long with Joe about five minutes so that never got brought up and Paulie didn't come in or any of the team leaders afterwards it's a good question because the Grand, Sh- the Grand Slam holds such a prestige and is such a prize that certainly in times past that you'd imagine they would have gone to the corner but then a draw would have been a very good result and, and left them in pole position. something we've talked about before, yeah, even before the championship started, yeah. you were in here and we were talking about the One idea that we have to yeah, stop yeah. obsessing about the Grand Slam. We will, we'll probably lose a game mm. and if and when we do lose that game, we yeah. have to then react. Do you think that we are getting closer to that mindset in terms of the players, the coaches, the I think supporters so. that actually Six Nations would be a great prize? I think so. I think they possibly would have taken the draw because I do remember actually now that I say Joe Schmidt did say to us afterwards, um, he was giving about the hand and the scrum which I didn't see at the time I looked at it again, it was very visible. I think it was more Romain Potts call on that side of the scrum. When Ireland got a, a wheel scrum and got the, the put in from the turnover scrum, about eight minutes to go, you can see Tom Wood clearly play the ball back with his hand in <laughs> the scrum. And that should have been a penalty, but no surprise that Craig Joubert only gave Ireland one kickable penalty in the, in the entire match. And a la France in the World Cup final, he wasn't going to give Ireland a kickable penalty to draw the game. But Joe Schmidt did say that that would have been the draw and they would have deserved that. So I think they probably would have taken it. Shane, would they have taken three points? They would definitely have taken the three points. There'd be no doubt about it. There wouldn't even be a debate. Um, they would have taken the three points. Um, l- listen, no you debate. You know, burden the hand, you know, and it would have been, you know, they would have been in a prime position to win the championship. And I think it would have been foolhardy to do anything else. And it would have been too risky to do anything else. It would have been wrong to, to, to do that. And it was the opportunity afforded itself um, under that circumstances that Jerry spoke. I, I saw it in the replay again. It was definitely uh, a penalty for a, for a hand back um, into the scrum and uh, they would have kicked the goal and they would have drawn the game and I think we would have been um, certainly a lot happier than we are today. The uh, the reason I ask it, Shane, is that we have talked about this obsession that we seem to have as Irish people with the Grand Slam, but we are in a position now, top of the league, two fairly demoralised teams left to play. Is this our best chance in a long time since 2009 of actually winning a championship again? I don't know if we have an obsession with the Grand Slam. It's just the the Grand Slam is the ultimate prize in the competition that we play in every year. So it, it has to be come. It has to come up. Um, you know that's the most you can achieve. Yeah, you win the championship. The the best thing, the best case, you win the championship. You win the Grand Slam. So um, the next best thing, you know, you win the championship with a triple crown. The next best thing, you win, win the triple crown. You win the um, the, the championship. You know, but. 
all the way along, the championship is key to it as well. Um, I, I think, you know, having won a few triple crowns and not won the championship, like, I would have, I think I would have probably given away a couple of those triple crowns for a championship. Um, so I don't think we're overly obsessed by it, which just, you know, it's something that's on the table at the start of every year and it's an opportunity to do it. So um, I think it's right that we, we look at it, but it's gone now. And still, we, we just have to, we have to set it aside and go, there's still a championship to play for. This and is it, though. Have we struggled to do that in the past, Shane? You don't seem to think we have. Maybe, be, I'm just looking at all our second places, all our consistent seasons, the times we lost on points difference. The fact that we only have the one Grand Slam to show for all those seasons just leads me to believe that maybe when, when we do lose that one game, we, we might sometimes, we wouldn't lose focus, that's not right, but maybe the belief that we can still be the best team in the championship. Well, generally, I think the game that we lost, certainly in my years, was the key game in the championship. So we were losing it. We lost it against the team that ultimately went on and won the championship then. Um, and if you look at the time that we came closest um, to winning a championship, having won a, a Triple Crown, we won a Triple Crown, um, we lost to France. And then we really went after the championship in that last game against Italy. So our focus was totally on the championship as opposed to uh, on anything else. Um but as I said, on the other occasions, it was based around um, getting beaten by by the team who ultimately went on to win the championship. Do you remember that one in 07 back in Rome? I remember we were all assembled in the um, Irish team hotel watching the French endgame against Scotland. And um, Simon McDowell, uh, oh, TMO, um, yeah, costing Ireland the title. And I can't forgive him, Jerry. I can't <laughs> forgive him. It's, honestly, it's just traumatic. Even Isn't, it? Isn't it? Up, it's come up a few times... Um, I hadn't thought about it for a little while. It's come, up a little, it's come up a number of times in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, the memories of, you know, a few little fine, fine well, never mind the, the French game itself, was a, you know, bouncing yeah. the ball in the last minute. Then mm-hmm. there was a fine detail of the Italian game on which we, I think as an Irish team, it was one of our most fluid displays. It was fantastic. Yeah. But ultimately, they scored a try in the, the last very last minute. play with like, you guys trying to run it. Isn't that right? Trying to I mean, go yeah, for a ninth Yeah, probably try. trying to do a yes, little bit too were. much. You know, yeah. being overly eager to try and win that championship. And then, um, you know, McDowell had the influence in the last <laughs> moment of the game in, in, in uh, Paris and uh, awarded a try, which I literally, in let retrospect, I don't think it was. Well, no, there's and certainly no I clear ground. Very hard role. to forgive that man. Yeah. There's very, very no clear ground in the road. But I do remember one thing about that day. It was Elvis Vermeulen, I think, who was awarded the try, and that cost Ireland the title. But I remember Shane being in the Irish team hotel, very swanky hotel, of course. The RFU boys were all staying there as well. And not everybody was watching the game. Most players were and hoping that France would come up short. But I do remember one player in the team who, well, I'll, I'll leave him nameless. I don't know what he wants to say in public. He didn't really care because the Grand Slam was the main one. There was a little bit of that mentality around now. I think there's less of it now on foot of there being so many second places. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I thought I didn't watch the game, Jerry. Oh. I wasn't down in the um, in the lobby. Uh, in the lobby, yeah. and there was, I think I was rooming with Dennis uh, as I normally would have been. And I, we went up to the room not because we didn't care that we won the championship, just because we thought it was gone. You know, right. I uh, and maybe there was one or two individuals in the boat that um, you mentioned there, but we thought it was gone. And the, I remember having played that game in Italy, and it was such a good performance. And coming in, and I remember the dressing room afterwards was uttered devastation you know mm-hmm. it was like we'd been beaten by 10 points and um, so i think there was a bit of that i think right. it was a there was a the, we couldn't believe that the scots would bring run the french that close you know but i i don't i think you'll see uh we'll see this team this irish team 
react well out of uh, the, the 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 loss at the weekend. I think they'll really recognise that they've a supreme opportunity to win the the championship. And I think, you know, if we're on the pitch, you know, on the last weekend in Paris in the sunshine of the Six Nations, and we have the trophy, I think it will be. An incredible occasion. Yeah, and like everybody would be delighted. Couldn't agree more. Sounds like a nice image, but yeah. uh, we have to take care of Italy first. And mm-hmm. uh, at least the results are in our own hands, Jerry. Just we've kind of got. Sometimes you lose the game, and you need then to get a break from somebody else. We've already got that break with France beating England, and then Wales comfortably beating France. Is it possible that we could win this championship without necessarily being the best team in it? How do you mean? Are Sorry. England marginally better than us? No, I don't think you can say that. I mean, that came down to a knife edge. Of, uh, arguably, one refereeing decision, different referee there. Nigel Owen, Steve Walsh, whomever, Ireland might have, got a, might have got a draw. You look at the stats, they were very, very close. You could argue that just about England's defence won them the game. Was there a sense that we were having to pull off almost every trick in Joe Schmidt's book yes. just to yes, be sure. that close? Yeah, they're, they're a younger, bigger, stronger side. You know, Like a lot of international sides that Ireland come up against, Ireland are usually punching up against their weight and invariably so against England. And I thought they were quite clever in the way they tactically went about it, even if their execution wasn't always on the money. And I think they will certainly look back on the game and rue a couple of decisions like trying to chip um, out of your own 22 when you've just gone 10-3 ahead, trying a low percentage restart when you've just um, the lead's been trimmed 10-6. They were odd plays for a team away from home leading a, a low-scoring game. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that, I don't think you can say... I think it's a very, very close tournament. between As has always been the case, a two-tier championship, the top four... Um, France beat England at home who beat Ireland at home who beat Wales at home who beat France at home so anytime the top four met it's been the home side Ireland are disadvantaged and they have two of those other three away so if they end up winning the title by winning in France and winning the title in points difference having come so close to beating England away I think they deserve it I think they could well have won that match in the Aviva Stadium at the weekend Shane you made the Jerry, point yeah, yeah. No, I, don't, I don't think this is an Irish side that can squeeze the life out of teams I really no. don't think they are and yeah. I think they have to keep on going have to keep on attacking and if you, if you do that um, and then you're a little bit inaccurate in the way you do it and you execute the skills um, you're, you can you can find trouble, and I think that's what happened at the weekend. I, there was spaces behind the idea of that chip over the top. Mm-hmm. It was it was it was a smart play. It was a good play because Brown actually lies quite deep. The defensive line is uh, um, the first up defensive line is up very fast, so there is a bit of space there. But you have to execute the kick perfectly, and we didn't do it on occasion. Or the cross get- kick exactly was on as well. Yeah. There was space there because of the speed and the way the English um, defensive yes. line defends. They so leave their winners exposed, don't they? And you also need a little bit of luck. Think of you, France did the exact same ploy, but you and usually got two tries, and one was a really freakish bounce of the ball or ricochet, and the other was a very lucky bounce. You need a bit of luck in those as well. Yeah. You do, and and that, but mainly it's like that perfect execution, which is very difficult. But I think this type of team Ireland are, and the type of type of team that England are, I think you have to take uh, chances, Chance. and you really yeah. have to go after them. Yeah. Um, and we saw that, like with, with the first play of the um, the second half, that was that was something that was, you know, they, they would have spoken about that at half time. Sure. We are going to actually go full out. Everybody, what I loved about that try was everybody was in the right position. Mm-hmm. They knew exactly what the role was. You, you think there's 15 guys on the pitch there was I would say there was eight guys who had a direct influence on that try and the job they were doing which is remarkable like you know getting all those pieces together and sequenced and run at exactly the same time and it was textbook stuff and it lured the English into two fundamental errors 
and lured the pillar, which is the first offender by the rook, out of his Dylan position, Hartley. which you should never yeah. do, uh-huh. and then it lured Brown across to get outside the, the, the football, which he should never have done as well, which well, was, you know, it was a remarkable move, and, and it was inspiring to watch. And you think of that first draft one where they went for the uh, the fake maul, Chris Henry peeling off to Conor Murray, the screens, a couple of decoy runners, then the cross kick, almost all 15 players were involved, not every one of them did their job right. I think there was there was a couple of times where I could see they were using power plays, which is the you know normally you have a one move set move off the um, off the uh, off the set piece. So you go, we're going to do X move, and that's it. And then we'll see what happens there. And you'd have a general pattern, but on occasion they were using power plays. So it would be three, four, and five phases in advance that were already set up. Now I think sometimes that can work, but I think you still have to play what's in front of you. And I think this, if I had to critique. The Ireland game plan. This is where I critique it. There was an occasion in the second half. We had a line out, and uh, we stood Chris Henry, the uh, the um, our back drawer, out and wide in the, in the wing. Yeah, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, and, and it went across to him, didn't it? I went across to him. Yeah. The way it went across to him, Jerry, it was on there. If everybody recognised the English defence and stood a little bit flatter, they could have gone around England off the first phase. They right. could have done it. It was there. It was exposed. And instead, everyone was lying a little bit too deep, too far outside Brian. And Brian threw a big pass. And they went through the play. Eventually, you know, um, everyone did their job. And there was a little bit of space on the far wing. And Keane Healy eventually ran into touch, threw it back in behind. But that was a case of them being too slavish to a, a pre planned move and I felt that was a couple of occasions the first half they were slavishly uh, they were too slavishly adhering to um, you know the set piece or the or the game plan that they were going to uh, put in place instead of playing what was in front of them that's probably and natural how- Shane is it when it's still quite early on in the coach's tenure you're, and you know he's you believe in what he's doing that maybe the players haven't got to the mm-hmm. point where they can adapt a little bit okay we'll go mostly with what Joe's telling us and then maybe do a few of our own things that's exactly what I thought. That's a thought I had, and I was trying to express it at half time. I don't think I did correctly. Um, it was exactly what I was thinking that they had such trust and faith in this coach, mm. and that is brilliant. And it's you know it's understandable given the the the, the results um, just prior to this game. But I still think no matter how good your play is, if you you're you're ultimately doing a, a play to try and break down a fence that you've analysed already. If that defence changes on the field and the opportunity to play something simpler and to uh, go to change the move on the hoof a little bit exists, if there's opportunity to make greater gain line, greater yardage or to potentially score a try by doing that, you have to be able to do it. And I don't think I don't think that Joe would happy it would, it would be happy with uh, players just as I said, slavishly following out what they've done on the pitch, you know, because if the opportunity is there, you always have to react. And I thought there was a couple of opportunities in the first half to do it, um, especially from outside maybe our centres. I don't think we reacted as well as we could. And uh, certainly in the second half on a couple of those power plays, I thought instead of looking at what was in front of them, players were looking to fulfil um, a, a power play or a longer pattern. The power plays were much better, though, in this game. And you've spoken about this. And we've spoken to each other about this. And they were in the first two games. You remember the time? Both times O'Driscoll got man and ball off, off set moves, strike moves. Yeah. And, and they worked better. They actually achieved them. Right from the very goal when Brian O'Driscoll got outside Burrell, you remember, and made that strong carry over the game line. And there was... There was some kind of penetration or at least gain line success over the, the strike moves. but And the try came, I think, within third three phases, line out off the top, and then uh, two players, Jamie and then somebody else, set up, the, set up the middle and then they scored. But watching the game, Shane, it felt really like if Ireland didn't get through, 
in the strike move or in the, after the first two or three phases, they weren't ever going to. But the more it went into multi-phases, the more comfortable the English defence got because they were so good at the breakdown. It forced Ireland to commit maybe three or four. They never really had the numbers to test them. There was never any gaps. And their, their defence and their line speed became more and more comfortable if you couldn't get around them or make a play off the first two or three phases. And in that respect as well, I take your point, but also... You know, two years ago, Ireland, four years ago, Ireland won there because they had a strike runner in Tommy Bow and he got two tries. And I just don't know if they have quite that cutting edge at the moment. Ireland are down a good few winners, most notably Tommy himself, who is world class. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll be one of those winners, maybe a bit like yourself, would be appreciated more when he's gone than when he was actually there. He actually is a wor- he has been a world class winner. Zebo, well, yeah, I mean, like, I, I'm not going to start criticising Joe Schmidt because there's no point, frankly, because he's such a great coach and he gets selection right. And you can be assured that he will have assiduous detail and reasons for why he hasn't picked Simon Zebo. And I would imagine it's more defence than anything else. And, you know, Trimble and Dave Carney, their work rate was savage at the weekend. You, I didn't realise until I watched again the video how many, how many rooks Andrew Trimble joined, how, much he, how hard he chased the game, how good Dave Carney was under the air. But there is nobody who's going to score from 50, 60 yards in that team at the moment. Is there, Shane? And well, you, that sort of work rate takes a little bit off your top pace as well. You have to sure. remember that. I thought I could see that in the last 10 minutes of the game. I think you're right. But the last 10 minutes of the game, we wanted some fizz, you know, yeah. and we didn't look to have much fizz. I think that's generally not because those two wingers aren't quick, but because they've done an incredible amount of right. um, work throughout Carries, the game. Yeah, so there is, yeah, a comp- and- there is a compromise there. But you're right. I do think, I, as I was watching, I was thinking back, you know, and it would have been so nice. You're right to have a Tommy Bow. Yeah. You know, to have someone like a Dennis Hickey. Yeah. You know, to have that sort of yeah. out and out gas. You know, mm. to have someone that could change a game that could, you know, that can make a break and you can get 60 yards up the field and something can happen off it. And um, I, I think you know, like even Luke Fitzgerald, I think it would yeah. be nice to bring on Zebo, maybe to bring on Keith as well. Earls, yeah, somebody with wheels could have made a contribution. Yeah. Could have made a contribution. You know, and I'd like. You know, there's. I think Zebo really needs to get himself in a position where Joe has to pick him. Exactly. You know, yeah. and I think he didn't come back in good enough shape after um, the Lions tour. Yeah, uh, he was out of shape when he came back, and uh, you know he's been injured. And sometimes, you know, those injuries can be a consequence of not being, um, you know, quite as sharp as you should be. Um, and he needs to he needs to follow Joe's direction and exactly. start doing the work around the field that. Yeah. Um, he needs he to do yeah. to have Joe pick him because Joe won't pick him just because he could do this, the remarkable yes. stuff. Yeah, he yeah. has to be able to do the boring, yeah. monotonous stuff, yeah. and that has to be an add-on. I watched him. He has to be easy to say, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> I watched him against the Saxons, right? And when he got the ball, he's the most exciting player on the pitch. Yeah, he just looked amazing every time he got. He was electric. He broke the first tackle. You thought he was going to do something, but I also watched him because I, I really want him to succeed. Yeah. I was watching his work rate, and it wasn't good enough. Not good either. enough. No. No. It wasn't good no. enough, you know, and no. he needs to marry those two things yeah. because if he does, he'll be a phenomenon for Ireland. Yeah. And if you look at it, this year is nearly gone. Yeah. And you know, the year that there could have been a grand slam, there might be a championship. And he's a, you know, he's someone who could be a world class player, but he's not going to be involved, you know. And I hope that it's something that he's, you know, he's learned from and he's ready to go, if not. Um, for the last two games of the Six Nations but he is ready to go on the summer tour and then he's ready to explode next year That's we, I just want to talk about Johnny Sexton because are we seeing now the worst case scenario that we imagined when he went over to France Jerry you have Joe Schmidt quoted afterwards talking about that restart that he tried that mm-hmm. went uh, straight into touch unfortunately he hasn't had a lot of chance to practice him too much in the conditions that we've trained in recently uh, in fairness that was because the uh, down in Clonmel was, uh, was pretty stormy but he goes on with Johnny going back to potentially play against Cast. it's just a little bit difficult 
struggle to probably get as much accuracy as we're looking for. I mean, that seems pretty key if you can't get accuracy from your out half. Whatever about maybe, I don't know, a second row playing over in France. When it's Johnny Sexton, your key player, if we had Johnny Sexton firing on all cylinders at the weekend... He might have won that game. Yeah, I know. There we go back to November again. You know, when he wasn't fit enough to play against Samoa, he needed a week off, and then he gets into the two games against Australia and New Zealand. He can't see through the game against New Zealand. Look, it is what it is, and it's not ideal, and they have to get around it. And you wonder, is it a contributing factor? But then again, I suppose we can't say every time Johnny doesn't hit the heights and doesn't show us to be what he is, which is the best out half in the Northern Hemisphere by distance, in my view. That if he falls short of that, we can't just always blame it on Rathen sure, Metro. But, but I mean, we're entitled yeah, to wonder. Well, it's as specific as this yeah, when yeah, Joe Schmidt yeah. says, well, we'd like to work yeah. on the accuracy of that, but actually he'll Look, be away no in Paris yeah, for yeah, the next Exactly. Week. I mean, he won't be in Belfast the two days this yeah. week when he could have done a lot of that. And it also cannot be ideal that when you keep back your 15 starters or whatever it is, they'll release the rest of the provinces, that the key man, your playmaker, your goal kicker, your, your driver on the field will be the one player not there, you know? And... It's it's a big factor because we don't, although we're Ireland are blessed to have the best out half in Europe, for the first time in a long time in the professional era, they don't have the choice of two because they always had Humphreys rivaling with Elwood who, and Humphreys rivaling O'Gara and then O'Gara rivaling Sexton. And it was great to have an experienced campaigner in the, in the stands watching the game who knew exactly what to do when he came on. If you look at that Irish backline, it's remarkably threadbare in terms of what the viable options are, even off the bench. Never mind starting. Probably not much oh. point. Yeah, Shane. Go oh, on. just on the. Did, sorry, I just wasn't sure if I, I misheard you. Was did Joe say that the the inaccuracy with the restart was a problem with with uh, with yeah, Donny? That restart he tried, Shane, at the start of the, at, at at ten six when just after Farrell yeah. made six ten. He said that was something he hasn't had time to practice of late. But that's, you know, I think that's a nonsense, to be honest with you, because mm. that's, a, a, you know, a restart. You, you don't need to be in Irish camp to practice a restart kicking 10 metres to the, the opposite side. It was also a very so, curious choice in terms of the game itself at yeah. that moment, wasn't it, Shane? I, to I, even I don't try think it. The, the idea of, you know, of Johnny, you know, listen, there may be lots of things that are affecting his game, Rassing. I don't think kicking a restart 10 metres into a right it's area more Joe, that, in, in fairness, by him playing a French club. Yeah, in fairness to Joe Schmidt, it's immediately after a game and he's feeling the frustrations of a defeat and he's just not happy that Johnny has to go back to Paris again this week. Yeah. I think there is it, but also I, I think that he needs to be careful because... You know, is if he keeps on reinforcing this with Johnny, and he has now on a number of occasions, he said it, and you know he's making his markets, and you know it may be an issue. I think it's I think it's being overstated as an issue, as you mentioned. But if you keep on going on about it, it does become an issue, and it will get into someone's head, mm. and then it's an excuse, and it thinks that it's other players, and then you've got the the uh, the, the tens that are underneath Johnny going, well, hang on a second, you know. Um, we've got a coach saying that this is affecting his game and I'm here you know it seeps into uh, uh, the psyche and I think that it has been mentioned and they've you know it's 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 nothing they can address at the moment Johnny's going to be there for another year I just think it's important to, to you know to cut him a bit of slack on this and not you know get into his head and keep on going on about it because I don't know the benefit of it Alright possible team changes against Italy I'll throw some names at you Shane Marty Moore Dunica Ryan Tommy O'Donnell Luke Marshall we talked a lot about Zebo there um, Luke Fitzgerald would any of those people come in come into your team if you're picking it um, I think there's a, a, a number of them could and I think they'd probably make an impact I think Marty Moore certainly I think he'd be pushing very hard um, I think we've seen um, Mike Ross 
um, who has played very well for the last number of years, but I think he's really, you know, sucking diesel at the moment. He's struggling, but it's nice to have um, uh, Marty Moore to come in. So he may just continue with that figuration um, with uh, Ross on first and then Marty Moore. I think he's really going to look to the wings. I think you're right. He might look to, uh, to, to, to have some extra gas on the wings. That's where uh, Luke Fitzgerald could certainly come in. I think Zebo, if uh, he gets a, a, another game and uh, he, he, um, he, he puts his hand up, then it'll be certainly thought with that. Um, I don't think they'll uh, change Doris. And I think Doris and Drico actually had a good game and limited opportunities. Um, I don't think there'll be any issue there. Um, keep 10. 9 was a difficult game because uh, he was under a lot of pressure. The breakdown wasn't as clinical uh, as, it, um, as it has been, but the England were phenomenal at it. I thought Rob Shaw in particular was so good. His work rate was, was savage. Um, and then maybe Donica Ryan in the second row, you might look at him. I think uh, Henderson is someone you could look at the second row as well. But, you know, the, the pack did all really well. I think, they, you know, they performed against a heavyweight um, English pack. So there's nobody there that you should think should necessarily be dropped. Tony O'Donnell I'm a huge uh, fan of as well. I wasn't quite certain of the logic behind the move. I know there's the idea that they can play across the um, entire back row uh, uh, less so than, than Jordy Murphy. Um, but uh, I really like Tommy O'Donnell as a player as well. I think he's, and I thought he was maybe a couple of steps already, already ahead of, of Murphy. But I'm not in camp, so there is a number of opportunities there for players. There's a number of um, opportunities for for Joe Smith to make changes. And my gut tells, my gut would say that he he would he would he would change it up just a little bit, and we'll see a couple of changes. I'm not entirely certain what they. Are, and it may depend on injury as well, with, with Brian certainly um, seeming to carry something. And uh, who, who else? Was somebody else in the back row possibly carrying it? Peter O'Mahony, yeah. Peter O'Mahony, yeah. I, don't, you know? I think they're thinking they'll be okay. But... The, the, the thinking is that they will be okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, ooh, um, a lot there. I, I was a bit surprised, again, by Shane there and hearing what Reggie Carrigan said. I believe he was quite critical of Mike Ross' performance, so I watched him a little closer last night. Scrums on the Irish put in were rock solid. Uh, they did real damage to the England scrums. Possibly weren't as rewarded as they might have been by Craig Joubert. I think his tackle count was in double figures. He even carried a few times. He was sucking on diesel by the time he was taken off. And he and Rory Best had um, tried but not managed to clear out. I think it was Launchbury just before he'd been hauled off. And there was no doubt that Moore added a bit more around the pitch and was very good clearing out. But I still think the balance there is right. I'm not sure that Joe will go for a switch there. I could be wrong, but I don't know what much more you can get from a tight head prop like Mike Ross. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I thought he did okay. Like okay. I thought um, second row, I, I, I genuinely didn't appreciate how well Devon Toner played until I look back in the video. I think he was Ireland's leading tackler. Mm. He was clearing out rooks. He was even starting to carry more in the second half, as well as all his aerial work. So... I thought he had a phenomenally good match, actually. And Paulie, you want to, you have to look at the video again to realise how good Paulie and Devon were around the ruck time, the clear-outs that Paulie did, particularly. Um, back row, it's cast in stone, I think, really, at this stage. I, I'm a bit like Shane in that I like Tommy O'Donnell. I'm a big fan. I think he's got a little bit of an X-factor. Would you bring him in for the game against Italy? Can you do this? We all, everyone goes back to that Grand Slam year where yeah, we Declan quite rotated made in, a few changes. In the fourth game, I think, well, well yeah, yeah, in the penultimate game, was it? Yeah, um, yeah that could work. I would... I'm not sure the reasons again. Again, you can be sure that Joe Schmidt will be assiduous in his reasons for going with um, Jordy Murphy ahead of Tommy O'Donnell. I just think that Tommy O'Donnell, if he gets a gap, if he busts a tackle, he is the forward in the absence of Sean O'Brien who can cover the most yards in the quickest period of time. And I would like to have that little bit more X-factor carrying in the team. Um, in the backs? Any backs, changes there? Only, only at wing, I would have thought. Again, um, 
Doris made a couple of handing airs and might have passed a couple more times, but I thought he was phenomenal. I mean, those carries he makes off a scrum where he gets through and burrows through and goes on for another four or five metres, they're just invaluable to a team. thought that was Draco's best game for Ireland this season. Um, the winner's work rate was savage. Uh, Dave Carney had a particularly good game. Andrew Truman got a bit of criticism for a couple of dodgy moments. Um, he can kick a ball. It's never been his 40. And then he followed up by giving away a penalty because the bad kick was probably playing in his mind. But otherwise, I thought his, his work rate was enormous around the pitch. I just think that the team needs a little bit of an injection of real cutting edge on the flanks. Um, and it's no criticism of Fergus McFadden because he did very well when he came on too and, and gave it a lot of energy. Gave a lot of energy as he does. But it just needs, it might need something on the flanks. But I wouldn't imagine... Maybe one change in the wing, maybe one or two changes in the bench would be the most that Joe would go, I would have thought. OK, well, it's exciting still. The optimism hasn't been totally punctured just yet, I hope. No. Jerry Thorny, brilliant. Shane Horne, thanks a million. Thanks. Cheers. Are you paying too much for your current account? Maybe it's time for a change. At KBC, everyone can bank for just €2 Euros a month. That's the price of a coffee. Just use your KBC debit card for purchases or cash back for free and avoid those annoying ATM charges. Oh, and did we mention you also get free internet and mobile banking? And before you ask, yes, your bank could be charging you for all these. Other fees and charges apply. Visit changeyourbank.ie, call one 800 or pop in for a coffee at any KBC hub in Dublin, Cork, Limerick and Galway. KBC, the bank of you. Two euros a month is based on a quarterly fee of six euros. Terms and conditions apply. KBC Bank Ireland PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Really great stuff there from Shane and Jerry. Hope you enjoyed that. A very interesting point towards the end from Shane about Johnny Sexton and the quotes I brought up from Joe Schmidt <laughs> Shane feels pretty strongly that Schmidt needs to stop talking this way about yeah. Johnny Sexton the point is now he's over in France this is a situation that Schmidt has to deal with and it does seem uh, uh, I'm moving away from what Shane said it seems to me and I'm sure it seems to a lot of people that he doesn't have a huge amount of faith in Paddy Jackson if he refused to bring Johnny Sexton off because whether it was an injury whatever it was Sexton was struggling in that second half and he was absolutely we talked about Mike Ross being out of gas there Johnny Sexton was completely out of gas. He tried one kick towards the end. Did it get blocked down? He certainly didn't execute it very well. And you could see him was barely able to walk back to position, mm. puffing heavily. There was an issue there yeah, that would have, been, would have been addressed if we had uh, an out half that the coach had full faith in, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I, th- I think that faith is kind of a strange word, you know. I think he knows what Paddy Jackson can bring. And he, like, he, he has a very clear understanding of what Paddy Jackson can do as a rugby player. And I think he has faith in Paddy Jackson's ability to deliver on, you know, his skill set at the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, does he have the faith? Does he have enough faith in? Pa- I mean, I think you're asking Paddy Jackson an unfair to do an unfair amount there, kind of beyond what he's actually capable. Well, he's of on the bench at That's the moment. The job that he's supposed to have is if the first choice out half is struggling for form or fitness, can he's I, supposed to be able to. Can come I in. do some rugby punditry? Please give it a shot. Okay, couple of observations here. Number one, why is it considered a bad thing in rugby for players to play in foreign leagues? It's exactly the opposite in in soccer where, uh, for instance, the French national team that won the World Cup in 98, uh, one of the things they would always say is, well, the great thing about our team was that we had players playing everywhere. We had players in Serie A and La Liga and the Premier League. We had, uh, In the Bundesliga, we had players with experience uh, from all over Europe who could uh, bring it all to our team and it, and it improves so, but apparently Johnny Sexton playing rugby in France is yeah. a bad thing there's for, a, for a clear enough answer to that the leagues in Germany and in England and, all, and in the other European football countries are structured in a similar way to the league in France would have been where they could have played their football that's not true Johnny Sexton is playing a lot more rugby than he was at home he's a lot more susceptible to injury 
pick one up towards the in, in the middle of that November series, for example, which meant that he didn't get a full run at those games. I, he's, he's missing a training camp this week. He's literally week missing a training camp this week because of the time commitments that he has to uh, give to his wealthy benefactors over in France. So I suppose it's a two-pronged reason, really. M- higher likelihood of getting injured and or just not being at full peak fitness and also less time right in the middle of the Six Nations. You're missing out in a few days with the camp. The other things about it is that um, I saw that injury that Sexton had. I mean, he he got up and seemed to stagger a little bit after it and looked groggy to me. And I thought, well, that's probably Sexton finishing the game. Now, look, you know, I mean, given how seriously that issue is taken, you know, I don't wanna, I don't want to say that he was concussed. I'm not a doctor, on I have no access to mm. his medical records. He he didn't play very well after that. It seems to me with Sexton that he's a guy who's the unusual thing about him as a as a, a fly half. Do we still say fly half? Yeah, we do. Ken. Yeah, yeah. It's a real throwback to the Ollie Campbell years there. But go on, Ken. Go for uh, what is it? Five first, eight or whatever. First five eight. First five eight, as they call it. Is that he's not That's actually a... that good as a kicker compared to a lot of other guys? Uh, I mean, he's what was pretty the, good as a kicker? What was he ninety fifth in the world or something? Yeah, that was a little harsh. I thought. Well, you know, I mean, someone someone sat down and worked it out, and apparently he's 95th. But the thing that makes him, I think, uh, you know, that impresses me about him is how good he is with the ball in his hand. Yeah. And I've seen him do amazing things, both for Ireland for the for the Lions. You know, things that Ronald O'Gara wasn't able to do. He didn't have the physique. He didn't have the speed. Maybe didn't have the imagination in that sort of, you know, in, in a situation where you've only got a fraction of a second to, to make a decision. And Sexton has all that. So if he's... If you sort of take that away from him, if he's maybe a little um, feeling a little groggy, I mean, it is a very physical environment out there. He's he's going to be his effectiveness yeah. is going to be completely mm. removed. Like if he, you know, he he doesn't even really have the kind of elite kicking to fall yeah, back. This this is the question, you know, that whether a, a Sexton operating at eighty percent is a better option than. Paddy Jackson. I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I honestly, well, you see, this is the thing. I don't know that much about Paddy Jackson. The only thing I know about him is what's immediately obvious when you look at him, which is that he looks very small to be playing, uh, to, to be playing rugby. Mm. I mean, what what is he? Five, six, five, seven? Ah, that's look, because of his baby. I think the baby face is adding to the whole idea that he is seventeen when actually he's in his twenties. Yeah, I mean, we're, uh, look, I, I'm again. It's a game of all shapes and sizes. Maybe the. You know, you can be short but big as well. He, mm. You know, it's not like he's a he's a little wisp of a of a thing, Paddy Jackson. But I mean, I don't know why um, I don't know why Schmidt doesn't seem to fancy him in a situation. But in a situation like that, he would surely have to be the better option. What's coming up in second captain's football? That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What yeah. did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to you, face. I'll say it to you now. I'm down 12 fields and we'll see them. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. So it's Euro 2016 qualification. The groups have been decided. Ireland are in a quite difficult group, I think, um, with one team that's probably going to destroy us in both games and then two teams of almost exactly identical ability. Contesting the second remaining, the second automatic qualification spot. Uh, so, a tournament which we kind of all thought we had probably better than even's chance of qualifying for. We now have less than even's mm. chance of qualifying I, for. I was nearly kind of saying, well, you know, we qualify for this European Championship. I mean, it's such a devalued <laughs> competition. I mean, obviously, we're going to qualify. I mean, that's that's a given. 
we're in the top half of the footballing countries of Europe. I mean, it's a doddle. You know, the whole qualification process, that's been devalued. I mean, when we're there at the tournament, and we will be there, uh, you know, I mean, we, when we got to Euro 88, there are eight teams. I mean, that's an achievement. Yeah. This tournament we're going to in France, horribly devalued. Now I'm looking at the group going, mm, that's not good. It's a fair draw, but, though. It's an absolutely fair draw. Martin O'Neill has staked his reputation as our manager in qualifying for a tournament. He's been landed in a difficult enough group but there's only one team there who are basically unbeatable. As you said, again, the rest of them, I don't know if Georgia are going to play a part here. But If Georgia are playing a part, Owen, we're in big we're trouble. In big trouble. Yeah. If Georgia are going to be considered a contender yeah, in this group. They were a lot closer to, wasn't, wasn't Spain they played in their qualifiers? And they got a lot closer to them than we did. Mm. Like a 1-0 and maybe a well, they scored They scored three goals in qualifying. Mm. I, think, I think... Yeah, I, th- I think the thing Hard here, to break down defensively, though. Yeah, I think the thing to, uh, to really focus on here is that... All you can ask when you're trying to qualify for these tournaments is the chance to beat a team at your level. Yeah. Basically, that means you're doing your job. Yeah. And we have, Poland and Scotland are almost exactly at our level. Yeah, we've so let's go and beat these teams and say, right, okay, that, that's an actual achievement. And we should be aiming to, you know, if we draw the away games and win the home games, you know, that leaves us in a pretty good position. I think that you, if, if we're going to Celtic Park thinking, well, you know, we'll be blessed to get out of here, get out of here with a draw... I mean, I think that's pretty defeatist. Yeah, draw the away games, win the home games, you qualify in a, in a, in a setup like this. We're taking Germany out of this entirety, aren't we? Or yeah. just giving them a yeah, win? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you qualify if you finish second. Yeah. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that even if we did finish third, um, which again, remember, means beating either Poland or Scotland to that, to that place, then at least the playoff is probably not going to be against mm. you know somebody like France or Turkey yeah. or, yeah, or, yeah, or yeah. whoever has knocked us out of playoffs in the past because... Um, those teams are all going to stroll through. You would imagine they, they you know, you, you sometimes see a big team make a bit of a mess of a group. I mean, Germany finished second in the group that we were in with them for 2008. They lost 3 mm-hmm. 0 at home to the Czech Republic. You know, it was kind of, you know, does not compute what happened here. But, uh, and that, that meant they had to go through the playoffs. But um, in this instance, they would, they would actually qualify even if they, they're not going to mess a group up any worse than finishing second. And that, that makes them automatic, that means they're not going to be in a playoff. Malachy Clerken covered the Winter Olympics in Sochi over the last couple of weeks for the Irish Times and is now back. Welcome home, Malachy, first of all. How are things? Things are good, yeah. Great. You enjoyed great yourself? Home. Yeah, yeah. I was walking in here this morning. is uh, <laughs> the coldest I've been for three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I saw, uh, I was listening to a podcast, Hang Up and Listen podcast. Uh, Slate put this out and they, were, they had a guy called Robert Smith, a reporter they were talking to, who was covering the games in Sochi and he was being asked about the build-up to it and everything being talked mm. about, the uh, attitudes towards homosexuality, issues of security, all of those things that we heard a lot about, and then what was uh, what transpired during the event itself. And he said, well, look, we were talking a lot about those things beforehand, we being the journalists over there, but once the games start, you get fairly wrapped up in them. And as he said himself, not even the Olympics can ruin the Olympics. Is that, yeah, that's a good line, yeah. Is that what you found as well? Everyone kind of just forgets about the bigger questions? It's not so much that they forget about the bigger questions. It's just that that there is no real um, forum or, or time or place to examine them. You know what I mean? That, that, that if, you, if you take, say, the first uh, event that I went to was on the, the Sunday morning, uh, the first Sunday was the um, the men's downhill, 
uh, sort of blue ribboned event of the games kind of thing. You know, it's sort of like it's like you know you know the Olympic the Summer Olympics have started because they have the hundred meters yeah. kind of thing. And so this is like men's downhill. Um, you know, to get up to the men's downhill at at the Winter Olympics is about a two hour journey. Um, you know, um, as by train and by bus, and then on foot for another sort of five hundred meters up the side of a mountain. You get up there, you watch them all come down the mountain. Uh, watch them come down in one, two, three. There's gold, gold, silver, and bronze. It just it it's the last thing on your mind to yeah. then ask. Uh, Matthias Mayer, the 22-year-old Austrian who's just won the gold medal, having uh, never won a downhill race in his life. It just isn't on your mind in the slightest to go, so about this anti-gay propaganda thing or about these Olympics have cost $51 billion or what about all those dogs that are apparently being rounded up? And, Is it unfair to ask an athlete about that after they've just... Done something incredible in their sporting field. I I would say it's probably unfair, but it's also as somebody and you guys know this as as, as people who 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 conduct interviews all the time. Um, when you're conducting interviews or when you're asking questions, you're trying to find something that will be answered. In that circumstance, you can talk to Matthias Mayer about. Um, all the controversies around the Olympics. This guy's after, this is his life's work has just finished. He's just going to go, I don't know, what do I care? (laughs) Did any athletes come out and say anything? Because there was a sense beforehand that a few athletes had spoken about what they, uh, there were were kind of hints that something might happen here, that there might be some iconic moment where uh, there was almost a a Black Power style protest Mm. as we saw in the Mexico Olympics many years ago. I don't know if anything like that transpired. Did any any athletes speak particularly openly? Not particularly. I mean, there was was a a story went around uh, and, and I got it sort of secondhand and funny when I read it, the guy who wrote it even had it second hand about a Canadian snowboarder called Michael Lambert. Um, pardon me. It was la- about sort of 10 days into the games, um, was doing a sort of pre-event pre, uh, kind of mix zone with a couple of Canadian reporters. Mm-hmm. And he was asked about his event and um, it's a sort of five, ten minute back and forth. And... At the end, they all said, thanks very much. And, and, and he went, really, that's it? Nobody's going to ask me nothing <laughs> controversial, no? And uh, they all kind of went, oh, uh, well, is there anything controversial you'd like to talk about? And he, ju- he, he not so much launched into, but he, he said about maybe four or five paragraphs of quotes about how, you know, um, it's all very well for us to be in the middle of this Olympic bubble um, but there are questions that need to be asked about where we are, about the worth of playing uh, games in a place like this, about um, the environmental impact on um, this region of of having these games. Um, and he didn't he didn't make an awful big fuss about it. He didn't go into it in any great length. But he said his piece and and, and walked off. Mm. Um, and that kind of stood out because I. I didn't see too many more of it. There was the the only controversies that really kicked up during the games actually were about when when it all started to, to kick off in the Ukraine in Kiev. Um there was 
the the IOC wouldn't allow Ukrainian athletes to wear black ribbons or to wear or to 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 or, or black armbands or anything like that. And that had actually there was an echo there of something that had happened in the first three or four days. There was um, there was a snowboarder. Uh, uh, forgive me now, I can't remember whether she was American or Canadian, called uh, Sarah. I only remember her first name as well. She had died, um, not so much training for the games, but she had died two years ago. She was a snowboarder, uh, and she wanted she was aiming for the games, um, and she was very popular among the the people that she would have been competing against. And some of them wanted to wear black armbands in competition to commemorate her, and wa- some of them wanted to put her name on their snowboards right. and whatever. And the IOC said, "No, absolutely not. We're not allowing that." And at the time, it seemed completely, you know. Uh, insane and very heavy handed and then you saw it started to make some sort of sense for me near the end when the Ukraine thing happened that they they didn't want to allow black armbands to commemorate one snowboarder therefore they were it was to sort of insulate themselves against what would be seen as a political thing come the end and that was the only sort of thing that athletes really sort of stuck their head above the parapet. Yeah, the major sporting organisations are FIFA would be the same with regards to it's why if you allow one particular political statement, so, then yeah. how, how do you decide what the other ones are or, or yeah, aren't? Yeah, like you, you definitely got the sense the IOC just have no interest in any of this. They just have no interest in engaging with the outside world with the, the sort of realities of the world. They just have no interest in getting getting drawn on it, getting involved on it. And, like, it, I remember the day when um, the, the Pussy Riot video came out. It was one day last week, mm. I guess, like, last Wednesday or so. Um, I got phone calls from two Irish radio stations going, are you near the Pussy Riot thing? A, I was 80 miles away up up the top of the mountain, uh, and that was happening in downtown Sochi. Uh, and B, they knew far more about it than I did. Yeah, like the, I, I saw a great line from one of the the American ESPN writers who were doing their wrap of the games there last night. And she had a great line that at the Winter Olympics, you always feel that you're at the wrong event, and that is exactly the yeah. feeling. Uh, like, and and that, that, there may be a little of that at the Olympics itself uh, because it's so sprawling. There is the big stadium, though. You know, you, if you're in the stadium precisely, for, the, for yeah. the athletics, you, you're feeling like right. Well, it will be something pretty amazing if, yeah. for me to miss it. Exactly, but the, but the, like the pussy riot thing happened, and but it like to me being there. It may as well have been on TV. In fact, it yeah. was on TV. It it wasn't anything that I was in any way close to or around. Or, or it's like or watching the US Masters, effectively. A bit of that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can only you can only see one thing at a time. But I mean, we might as well just get to the the core question here, which is: you having been in Sochi, do you think that they should have been given the games? In oh the God, first not place? at all. But I mean. Everybody knew that from the start, and and there was definitely that sort of feeling of unease all the way through. Um, as I say, to go to go up to which the men's, one of the, which one of the reasons why they shouldn't have been given the game? Well, the money is think? insane. Yeah, like if as I say, every uh, every sort of second day, I would go up to one of the the snow events. Like the snowboarding, the the skiing, the cross country skiing, the biathlon, the ski jump, all that sort of stuff was up the mountain, and it was, it was this famous nine billion dollar road mm. and rail system, and like when you were on it, like it, like it's no, 
it is literally a road cut through a mountainside and it is a two-lane road on stilts. It's not even, you know, like it's, it's not on the ground. It's on stilts uh, with a train on one side and a, a train line, a two-way train line and then a two-way roadway. And it cuts, like tunnels through sort of three mountains to get up to the, to the main mountain. And it's just, you, like, if you ever thought of, you know, I wouldn't say it was God's country we were going through, but, mm. like, if you ever looked at nature just being given the two fingers, this this road, is it's just an insane sort of uh, display of man's power over the earth. Mm. And what, and just, and, and the idea that this cost nine billion for, for a, a, a load of um, facilities that, I don't know. You is the problem where the money is coming from? Is that, is that the issue, though, that the, your average Russian person and maybe poor Russian people ultimately are going to be paying for yeah. this? Uh, yeah, and I mean, you go into, like, if you were in downtown Sochi, a couple of things really struck me. Um, in downtown Sochi, they, like the games weren't in Sochi. They were in, in Adler, which yeah. is about sort of 40 minutes away. You could very easily walk around Sochi and not know the games were on. And and if you talk to any of the locals, like there was n- really no enthusiasm for it at all. None of that esprit de corps that no, you saw in no. London two and, years ago. And, and, and Russia is a poor country, you know, like if you take a taxi around or if you go out to eat or anything like that in Sochi, it's all very cheap, mm. you know. It, it, it is all very, uh, it, it, the standard of living is low and like I... I, I Spent uh, some time talking to the the guy, the, the barman in our in our hotel uh, had very good English and wanted to practice it talking to the people who had come yeah. from around the world. Uh, and uh, on the one of the last nights, I was going, uh, yeah, I'm 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 going home on Friday, and he says, uh, you come back to Sochi, and I went, well, I doubt it. I, I, I don't know. That's the spirit, man. I, well, I don't really know why. Yeah. Well, I just course. kind of I, see you next year. I don't know when I'll ever have any uh, any chance to. And he goes, "Yeah, I get out soon." Uh, and I said, "Why well, you not like it?" He says, "Ah, sushi great, but uh, Olympics suck." And I was going, "Why? Why Olympics suck?" He says, "Well, uh, in two weeks, when everybody leave, we will have no water. We will have no electricity." Yeah, and. That's that's what he was saying, and, and the the sense of of the locals just kind of going right. All this money has been spent, but it has been spent so the world can yeah. come here. It's and hard to align yourself again. to that circus, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, but it was. Yeah, you got you got a very uneasy feeling all the way through. Uh, you like it, it 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 didn't it wasn't sort of infused with joy all all the way through. Like the sport was great. The sport was know. joy joyous at times. What was your highlight? Oh, the women's ice hockey final was yeah. was genuinely one of the best nights of sport I've been at. Now, uh, like the la- the only thing I can compare it to in recent times was the All Blacks game uh, last November or the hurling final last September. Um, I, America and Canada are the, the the two best teams by you know like the rest of the teams mm. are playing a different sport in in the women's mm. uh, game and. Um, they hammered the living hell out of each other. Uh, and Canada haven't been beaten in 19 games in, in Olympic ice hockey. They'd won the last three. And this was America's chance to, to beat them. And they went 2-0 up and with 
three minutes and 56 seconds. Like they were, they were, if you knew nothing about ice hockey, but you were a, a soccer fan or a GAA fan or a rugby fan, you could totally identify with the way the American team were t- just holding on, uh, sitting back, uh, not trying to get the third goal, desperately hanging on to the 2-0 lead. Every time they got the puck, they just hit it up the other side of the ice and stood there. Yeah. Like like a really bad five-a-side team, <laughs> yeah, just yeah. kicking it up the yeah. other end and stand there. And uh, they held on and held on. But with, and even with three minutes and 56 to go, the Canadians got one back, a deflected goal. And even then... Like it got down to the last 55 seconds and Canada got the equaliser and then won it in overtime. Yeah. And it was just hilarious. Not hilarious, but it was like the tension in the place was extraordinary. The Canadians were the only country I saw really outside of, of Russia that had a big support at, at any event. They had a big support at, uh, at the ice skating the night of the Paris final. They had a big support at the, at the ice hockey. The Norwegians, obviously, up at the, the cross country, there was, there was a lot of them. But um, there was a big Canadian crowd in that night. And when they got a cent of it, when they got one back, and then they got the two, and then in overtime, it was just the atmosphere was amazing. And the, and it was great sport. It was absolutely excellent sport. But the, that, that was the highlight by a mile. The Canadian men's hockey team uh, completed the double over the weekend in the, in the ice hockey. Uh, overall, Canada won one more gold medal, 10 to the USA's nine. Uh, it's one of the few world events where yeah. Canada is a proper sporting superpower. We tend to think of them as the almost put upon little brother of yeah. the, the of the US. It's just to be really patronising here. Do they are, do they go insane with the power that they wield at the Olympics, Canadian fans? No, they're they're the um, they <laughs> they're pretty pretty chilled about it. I think they're they're pretty okay about it. Now, the aftermath of the the of the like at the, at that ice hockey game when America were two 0 up. There was one guy down behind the Canadian goal. Was he? No, he was down behind the American goal. Um, and they were 2-0 up with five minutes to go. And he was, if you had to just create a sketch character for, say, Curb Your Enthusiasm yeah. of an ugly American sports fan, this was the guy. This guy was he? Yeah. He was about... 16 stone, really kind. You know, you have a picture of him in your head. Yeah. And he was standing up with his two hands out like that going, we won the gold. We won the gold. <laughs> and the, there was an American, a couple of American reporters beside me going, oh man, shut up, shut up. And I was going, is he not saying that we want a goal? And they were going, no, he's going, we won the gold. And I was going, oh, that's not going to end yeah. well. And it didn't end well. And there was a few Canadians afterwards were seeking this guy out and going, what did you win? What, what was that that you won? Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I was actually, I, I followed quite a few American writers on Twitter and one of them was saying that uh, the night they lost, the, they lost the women's final, instead of the Canadians coming in like really sticking it to them, mm. they were kind of saying, sorry about that yeah. and also sorry for Justin Bieber. Yeah, that's, ba- yeah, yeah. that's basically the reaction. So they were, they were being ultra nice even in, <laughs> even in victory. Malachi, thanks so much for shaking off the jet lag and coming in to see us. Thank no worries, lad. So that's the question that's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight, tonight, into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight, their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. 
Second Captains Football, available on irishtimes.com, Second Captains, and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. Tonight, 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 tonight. Good to hear the Canadians were being a bit more humble in victory than that American fan was in mm. near victory. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, the Olympics, it's a carnival, you know. Uh, people from all over the world uh, come together in one in one place and, uh, you know, they, they sometimes live up to the stereotypes that we have of these people. And uh, I think it's fair to say that on this particular occasion that that American fan, uh, you know, did the job of a lot of... Did the job for a lot of people, you know, fulfilled the stereotype that we that we had of them. There is a question. We talked about the ludicrousness of the amount of money that was spent on those Olympics and the other issues that would lead you to believe that they should never have been awarded to Sochi in the first place. But Brazil comes into this in the sense that, that this is where the World Cup is going to be and there's another issue there of them spending all this money and all these stadia and all the infrastructure when really it should be better spent on clearing up the social divide and all these kind of things. But if you're not giving, say, the Football World Cup can to Brazil, mm-hmm. and if you're not giving the Olympics, not moving it outside the more traditional countries, what are you left with? Germany hosting are, it every all, 12 years. You, mm, well, I think the problem is that the tournaments have become so big or the kind of, they've become so high spec. The demands that are made by FIFA particularly and, and the IOC as well are, are so outlandish and extravagant um, they, they've kind of grown way beyond um, what's reasonable. And there's no, there's no need, for instance, for the World Cup in Brazil to to require so many new stadiums on such a huge scale. Mm. There really is no need, but that's uh, the result of FIFA. I mean, it's essentially a, the whole thing is a tribute to FIFA's monumental self-importance. You know, it's it, what? How many you say you're going to build ten stadiums? They're all going to be a minimum of forty thousand all seater. You know, corporate facility. You know, let's have that. I mean, as far as FIFA are concerned, that's great. As far as the construction industry in Brazil is concerned, that's great. Same thing in in Sochi. Um, You know, the government is going to spend a huge amount of money on these facilities, which will be used for two weeks. Great for people in the business of building facilities or people who can kind of inveigle their way into that exchange of cash between the government and all these people. Not so good for everybody who doesn't have anything to do with it you know, say the other 99% of people in the country who might think, well, if the government is, is going to spend $51 billion, maybe there are other ways to spend it. Mm-hmm. The thing is here really that the World Cup, let's say, has become like something you buy out of Ikea. It mm. doesn't matter where the country, it doesn't matter what country is hosting it, they still have to provide the exact same thing regardless of what was there before or regardless of what will be needed afterwards. What we need are 10 stadiums that look exactly like this and that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter. I mean, I, th- I think the, the great thing about the World Cup in New Zealand was that there were some really small stadia in it, but there was a, an idea that the the country really was hosting it. That the, mm. the, what, uh, the country that won the bidding process won it just on its merits. Said mm. this is the World Cup that New Zealand can afford and can provide for the IRB. It's a lovely size tournament, the Rugby World Cup as well, which is why I think it could work out for Ireland. Completely, you know, and well. I, like it's 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 a 
there there are two different there are two different uh, examples, very different examples. But at the same time, New Zealand won it on New Zealand's merits. The, the thing about it is, I mean, you, the point that you made about if you do, if you don't have it in places like Brazil, you know, Russia. I mean, Brazil has hosted a World Cup before. Russia's hosted an, an Olympics. Yeah, before. And I'm not saying it sh- should go to Sochi, but I'm saying those possibilities are opened up because you're every year, every four years, you're actually lowering the amount of countries that could potentially host it. Yeah, well, I think this the way that it's gone lowers the, the countries, lowers the number of countries that could that could uh, host it because it costs so much. So you've got a, a, a money barrier as opposed to any other kind of barrier. So, so it's the reason why Ireland, which is a larger country than Qatar, can't host the World Cup. You know, people say, well, it's, it's ridiculous, we're too small. Qatar is smaller than Ireland in every way that you look at it, apart from the fact that they're trillionaires. Mm. And that's why they get to host the World Cup, even though it's a completely unsuitable place, you know. But So if you've got a lot of money, you can host a sporting event. And if, like most countries, you don't, then you can't. I mean, that's why Euro 2020 doesn't have a host. It's being hosted everywhere because all the countries in Europe are going, oh, actually can't, just really can't afford this at this at this time. That's the end of Second Captains at the Irish Times. Drop us an email, secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. You can follow us on Twitter at secondcaptains, facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. We will be back a little bit later on today. We're going to get recording right now for the Second Captains football show, which will include plenty of reaction to the draw onto a pretty interesting weekend. Of football, thanks, Perf. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much for listening. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys.